0: want to just mention uh, to parents of young children, the subject matter, the passage that we're going to look at today, the subject matter might be frightening to kids, so use your own discretion about whether you want to keep them in the service with you, or if you would like to take them to our children's ministry program, feel uh, free to do that. want to welcome those of you again who are new to City Church. We're glad to have you. If you want to just... Uh, Uh, There's a little card in the program on top of it. It just says prayer requests. You can uh, put your name and email address. Let us know that you were here. Uh, Later on, we're going to take an offering, and you can put that in the bucket. Um, Or if you just have a prayer request, anybody in the church, if you have a prayer request, just put it down there. You can do it anonymously. You don't have to give us all the uh, specifics if you don't want to, but we pray for those as a staff, and uh, we would be honored to have the opportunity to pray for you. So, So please feel free to leave us a prayer request. Um, Those of you who are listening to us by our app or our podcast, we're delighted that you have uh, joined us as well. We're in a series on the Gospel of Mark, we're working through just the first half of the book in this series, which covers three and a half years in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Later on, we're going to do the last half of the book, but we're just covering the first half right now. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. If you have a hard copy, turn there. If you have a digital version, uh, look there at Mark chapter 5, verse 1. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're going to put it up on the screen, and uh, we'll read this passage together. In fact, let's read the whole story together, because I think it's a very compelling story, and uh, then we'll break it down afterwards. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake. This is Jesus and the disciples. Remember, they had come through a terrible storm. Uh, In fact, when you see what's going to happen in this story, it is very possible that the storm that they came through was uh, demonically, supernaturally uh, inspired, all right? So they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, "'Come out of this man, you evil spirit.' Then Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' "'My name is Legion,' he replied, "'For we are many.' And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, "'Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them.' He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs." The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, it it uh, it was ten cities, essentially, that area, Ten cities, he said, in the Decapolis. How much Jesus had done for him, and all the people, uh, who, all the people were amazed. So, for those of you who've been with us throughout the series, you know this isn't the first time that we have read about Jesus uh, casting demons out of demon-possessed people. But this is the longest, most vivid, and frankly, most chilling account of demon possession and exorcism that we have seen in Mark, and it is. The most chilling account and the longest account and the most vivid account in all of the Bible. I think this, ba- this passage teaches us four things this morning about evil that we need to know. Okay? First is this, evil is a present reality, we know that. Second, evil is personally disintegrating. Third, evil is societally disintegrating. And fourth, finally, evil will one day be vanquished. So it's a present reality, it's personally disintegrating, it's socially disintegrating, and forth, finally, evil will one day be vanquished. Let's start with the first one. Evil is a present reality. Just as soon as Jesus gets off the boat, he is met by a man with an evil spirit, verse 2 says. So right off the bat, we are confronted with the Bible's claim that there's more going on in the world than you can see and scientifically account for. Now, if you're a skeptic this morning, and some of you may well be, if you're a skeptic this morning, uh, this all probably sounds to you pretty uh, primitive. You say, well, look, ancient cultures believed in demons because they didn't really understand disease and mental illness and epilepsy and things like, we, like that, that in the way that we understand them today. And so they just attributed that, you think, to uh, all of that, to demons. They were simplistic, you feel, and they were naive about how things work. And maybe that is the case of many ancient cultures, but that is not the case with the Bible. For example, the Gospel of Matthew says this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, it says, news about Jesus spread, and the people brought to him the ill, the demon-possessed, lunatics, and the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Now what's interesting about that is that the Bible differentiates the demon-possessed from the diseased, okay? Okay. One, you can see there from Matthew 4 that they knew the difference between a physiological issue and a demonic issue, but more than that, it says that they brought not only the diseased and demon-possessed, but also uh, lunatics. Now, that's an old word, and it's a pejorative word today, I understand that, but the original meaning of the word meant anyone that was characterized by insanity uh, or by irrational behavior, okay? What this means is that, is that the Bible understood the difference between insanity Uh, mental illness, uh, epilepsy, disease, and demon possession, okay? The Bible understood all of that. And so what we're left with is the reality of evil, and that there is just more going on in the world than just what you can see and scientifically verify. Now, here's what I want you to get. As it pertains to the reality of evil in the world, I want you to understand three things that the Bible teaches us about evil. I'm going to just kind of walk through these very quickly under this first point about the reality of evil. You need to understand this because the Bible actually teaches something very complex and very nuanced about evil. It's not just that there's a demon around every corner. That's not what the Bible teaches. I want you to understand what the Bible teaches about evil. First is that there is evil in everyone including me. Would you repeat that with me? There is evil in everyone, including me. So you don't have to be demon-possessed to do evil. Because you're a sinner, you do evil. Evil is your nature, your self-centeredness, your narcissism, your lack of forgiveness of others, your lust, your envy. These are all evil. Uh, These are all evil in you. Look in the mirror, and you will see the face of evil in the world. That's, that's one thing that the Bible teaches us about evil. Here's the second, that there are evil forces at work in the world, namely Satan and his demons, working to disintegrate all that God wants together. Okay? And if you think about it, God's work in the world can be summarized by the word reconciliation. Okay? What God wants to do, he desires to bring all things together. He wants to bring God and man together. He wants to bring mind, body, and soul together. He wants to bring humans and the environment together. He wants to bring relationships together. He wants to bring everything together. He wants to reconcile everything. Satan's work, though, can best be summarized by the word disintegration. Satan is hard at work to bring disintegration into the world. He wants to disintegrate people, he wants to disintegrate creation. He wants to disintegrate relationships. Married couples, you need to understand this. Satan is working actively to destroy your marriage. You need to understand that. This is one of the things that Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy your marriage. Parents, you need to understand something. Satan is working actively to destroy your children. That's something that he desires to do. He wants to destroy them. Now here's the question, how does he do the work of disintegration in our culture? And it would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice if he did it in a very obvious way, like show up in a red costume, wagging his tongue, and you know, he's got horns and a tail, and you know, everybody would know this is Satan at work. That's not how he does his work. He does his primary work in the world much more subtly now listen to me make a note of this unfortunately I didn't put it up on the screen so I want you to make note of this because this may be the most important thing that you uh, hear today here's what I want you to understand the primary strongholds of evil in the world this is how satan works primarily the primary strongholds of evil in the world are the idea systems that dominate our world. I'm going to say that again because I want to give you a chance to either write it down, make a note of it, something like that. Here we go. The primary strongholds of evil in the world are the idea systems that dominate our world. Let me give you some examples of that. Sunday afternoon, maybe next month, whenever it is, maybe October, November, you're watching an NFL game. Actually, you're watching the Dallas Cowboys trounce the Indianapolis Colts. (laughs) A commercial comes on a sleek, powerful, glistening Mercedes with a gorgeous young woman standing next to it conveying this idea. Make enough money and you can drive this and you can have me and you will be happy. Now that's how Satan does his most powerful work in the world that I, through those kinds of ideas. Here's another one. A college classroom, maybe a science class, maybe a philosophy class. The professor says, look... All there is in the world is what you see, nothing else. You are a random accident in the world. The Primary strongholds of evil in this world, primary way that the enemy works, is through the idea systems that are in this world. These idea systems are the basis for the evil that we as people do. Which is, by the way, that why when you come to City Church and you notice the third banner on the left and the right, says unlearn. When you, when you meet Christ, when you believe in Christ, you must unlearn the idea systems that you have used, or that, excuse me, that, you have, that have come to govern your life by immersing your mind in Scripture. You have to unlearn those idea systems. Okay. So the primary stronghold of evil, the main way that, that Satan and his demons work, is through uh, the idea systems that have come to govern your life. Okay, And then here's the third thing that the Bible teaches us about evil. And that is that demonic, demonic forces can and sometimes do invade and control the body of a human being. As in the case of the man in this particular passage. Now here's the thing. The Bible doesn't really tell us much about the process of how that happens, okay? But it does teach us that it can't happen to people who believe in Christ, okay? It is very difficult to know how common demon possession is in the world. But if my experience is typical, in 25 years of ministry, I have only suspected uh, demon possession in two people that I have uh, encountered in 25 years of ministry. Now, I will also tell you that I've spoken with missionaries who work in other parts of the world who have said that they encounter demon possession much more frequently. Regardless of the frequency of it, it is clear that Jesus encountered it very frequently in his ministry. For most people, though, what I really think is important for you to understand is that, number one, evil is in you. Evil is in you. And second, the main strongholds of evil in the world are the idea systems on which you were raised. Because those idea systems give rise to the evil that you do. Evil is a present reality. It is. It's very real in the world in which we live. Okay, now that's the first thing that I wanted you to get today. Let's move on to the second thing that I want you to understand about evil that we see from this passage. And that is that evil is personally... Disintegrating. We said that, that we said that God's work, the main, main thing he wants to do is reconcile. Uh, but we said that uh, Satan's work can best be summarized by the word disintegration. And I want you to understand that evil is personally disintegrating. If you read verses 2 through 5 in this passage, there are a number of things that stand out about this man. One, of course, is the supernatural power that he has. No one is strong enough to subdue this man. Verse 3 It's sort of an irony. It says that he lived in the tombs. In other words, he he was, in a sense, uh, the real walking dead. Death was all around him. His world was completely isolated. The people in the city had chained him. They'd put irons around his ankles to control him. Verse 5, he's in misery. In fact, so much misery that he cries out and that he would cut himself. Uh, He was a cutter. He, He would cut himself to relieve his misery. Now, I want you to think about what I said earlier, that the work of Satan can best be summarized by the word disintegration. This man, the evil in this man, has cut, uh, he has been cut off from himself. He's been cut off from his community. Uh, he is a miserable soul who has to dwell with the dead so that the rest of the community won't be bothered by his shrieks of, men, of misery. He is disintegrating even as we read this passage. He doesn't even know who he is. Because in verse 9, when Jesus asks, what is your name? The demon speaks for the man and gives a number instead of a name. He says, he says my name is Legion. Uh, Legion was a number. It referred to the number of soldiers in a Roman army regiment. It wasn't a name. This man doesn't even know who he is. That's how disintegrated he has become. He's cut off from himself. Now this... You know, this case of demon possession, this obviously is, is uh, an extreme example of the disintegrating effect of evil. But even though I suspect, uh, I suspect that none of us uh, here are or ever have been demon possessed, uh, all of us have experienced, to some degree, the disintegrating effect of evil in us. Maybe not to the degree that this man has, but we have all experienced it to some degree. I want you to notice something very important in verse 3. I said earlier that we don't know much about the process of demon possession, but I do want you to notice this. It says in verse 3 that no one could bind him anymore. In other words, at some point they could, but no one can bind him now anymore. What this teaches us, what we understand, what we learn from that is that the effect of evil in a person's life is gradual. It's gradual. It sneaks up on you. It doesn't come up and say, I'm going to destroy you. Rather, it, it, it slowly, bit by bit, sucks you into it. And it slowly, bit by bit, disintegrates your life. I want to give you an example of this. Uh, how many of you know um, Miley Cyrus? Raise your hand if you know Miley Cyrus. I don't mean know her personally, like you've met her, but you've heard of her. Come on, seriously, raise your hand. Everybody here has heard of Miley Cyrus. If you haven't heard of Miley Cyrus, where have you been living? She is all over the place. Miley Cyrus. Okay, she, you know, she is the you know, twerking, tongue wagging, skin showing, uh, now apparently bisexual Miley Cyrus, who once was sweet little Hannah Montana. I read a fascinating article on, uh, on Miley Cyrus recently, and what caught my attention uh, in this article was that she said that the Hannah Montana show probably caused body dysmorphia uh, in her life. In other words, a mental disorder that's characterized by an obsession with a perceived imper- uh, imperfection about her body. And I want you to hear what she said. Okay, here's, here's what she said. I'll just read this to you. She said, from the time I was 11, it was, you're a pop star. That means you have to be blonde, and you have to have long hair, and you have to put on some glittery, tight thing. This is 11 years old. Meanwhile, I'm this fragile little girl playing a 16-year-old in a wig and a ton of makeup. It was like toddlers and tiaras. I was made to look like someone that I wasn't, which probably caused some body dysmorphia because I had been made pretty every day for so long. And then when I wasn't on that show, it was like, who am I? Do you hear that? That's disintegration. Remember the demon-possessed guy? He doesn't know who who he was. He doesn't even know his name. I'm not saying she's demon-possessed, but I'm saying listen to that. Listen to the disintegration. She doesn't even know who she is. Who am I? I would have anxiety attacks. I'd get hot flashes, feel like I was about to pass out or throw up. It would happen a lot before shows, and I'd have to cancel the show. Then the anxiety started coming from the anxiety, and you get in this hole that seems like you're never going to be able to get out of it. Now, I seriously doubt that had Satan slithered up to Miley's parents and said, let's make a Faustian pact. I'm going to destroy your daughter by making her a TV star. I seriously doubt that they would have said, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. But somewhere along the line, her parents thought, hey, money and fame and sensuality would be a good thing for an 11-year-old girl. Where did they get the idea? Remember, it's the idea systems that are the major stronghold of evil in this world. Where did they get the idea that money and fame and sensuality would be a good thing? Where did they get that idea? Why didn't they think that this girl's spiritual development would be far more valuable to her than all the money and the fame in the world. Why didn't they think that? See, Only in a materialistic, naturalistic culture obsessed with money, fame, and sexuality would anyone think that money, fame, success would be more beneficial to this little girl Than spiritual development. Now look, I'm not trying, I want you to understand, I'm really not trying to pile on her parents. Undoubtedly, they feel terrible about it and would like, you know, they would likely change things if they could. Maybe they even wonder how it got to this point with her. Here's the thing: it didn't happen quickly, nor was it obvious, at least at first. Gradually, slowly, over time, money. Fame and sensuality began to disintegrate Miley to the point that she is now a willing participant in the very evil that is disintegrating her soul and her life. And only a supernatural power can free her. Someone stronger than the evil that is destroying her. Here's something you might think about today is that Miley Cyrus needs prayer. And maybe today, that's something, just as you leave today, maybe you could just whisper a prayer for that young woman. Okay? See, this is, this is the thing. Evil is personally disintegrating, but it happens very gradually and very slowly. How did you become an addict? Slowly, gradually. How did your problem with anger It's now so out of control, and there's broken relationships in your life. How did that develop? It happened slowly, gradually. How did your obsession with your physical appearance begin? Slowly, gradually. How did your affair begin? It happened slowly, gradually. This is how evil works, and it disintegrates every aspect of a person's life slowly, gradually, over time. Evil is a present reality. Evil is also personally disintegrating. And then here's the third thing that I want you to understand, is that evil is also societally disintegrating. It is societally disintegrating. I want to tell you something. As chilling as the effect of evil on this man personally is, I think possibly what is most chilling to me in this passage is the evil of the community in which this man lives. And I want you to think about it. You know, we're not sure, but it is likely that this is a Gentile community. Why why do we think that? Well, it's because Jewish people wouldn't have been pig farmers. Right? You get that? I mean, I'm not joking. That's true. (laughs) They wouldn't have been pig farmers. Okay. For some reason that nobody really understands, other than that the demons inside this man knew they weren't going to get to stay put, because a power stronger than them had come along. For some reason, these demons asked to be allowed to inhabit the pigs, which they promptly uh, destroy, and which probably also destroys the economy of this pig farming community. I want you to think about this. The, you know, the, the demon inside this man answered that we are legion, that this has, how many demons are inside this one man? Well, think about it. They destroyed over 2,000 pigs. Um, that's a lot of demons inside this man. In verse 15, the people from the community come and they see this previously tormented man sitting dressed in his right mind, healed of all this misery that this guy has been living in. Verse 16 says that they hear about the pigs and their economy. And then verse 17, look at this. This is so evil. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I want you to think about that. These people who chained this man up in the community graveyard are more bothered by their local economy than they are thrilled about this man's healing. One commentator on this passage wrote this. People can tolerate religion as long as it does not affect business profits. What would it be like to live in a society that is so possessed by money and violence and that is so dehumanizing that money is more important than human well-being? What would it be like to live in that kind of a society? Perhaps... A society in which the medical director of Planned Parenthood could discuss the sale of aborted children's organs on video, but the organization that produced the videos, that exposed it, is the one who is publicly denounced. Maybe it would be like living in that kind of a society. You see, because as we said earlier, Satan's primary strongholds are the idea systems to dominate our lives, you need to understand that whole cultures, whole communities, whole societies, whole countries can become controlled by evil. Evil can become so institutionalized in a culture that it begins to disintegrate the society in which it lurks, eating away at the moral fiber that holds that society together, destroying marriages, degrading and humanizing women, discriminating on the basis of ethnicity, incarcerating and isolating instead of rehabilitating and empowering, reducing the act of sex to an animalistic lust, and then legalizing the slaughter of innocent children in their mother's womb because the child would be of the child as a result of that sex would be an inconvenience. These are signs of societal and institutional evil accepted by society at large in this society that we live in. Evil is a present reality. It is personally disintegrating, but it is also societally disintegrating. Even this society that we live in is disintegrating because of evil that has become institutionalized and socially approved of here in America. Which leads me to my next point. If evil is personal, uh, a present reality, if it is personally and societally disintegrating, here's the question. Where is the hope? Where is the hope? Is it in government? Is it in more, more laws? Is it in tax reform, healthcare reform? Where is the hope if evil is dominating our society and disintegrating it from within? Where is the hope? As important as government, and as important as good laws, and as important as health care and all of those kinds of things are, the only solution to evil is that a power more powerful than the evil that is in us comes along. And that's the final point here this morning that I want you to understand is that evil one day will be vanquished. And it will be vanquished by Jesus Christ. You know, this passage is interesting to a lot of people because it deals with evil and it deals with demon possession, and I get it. Those are very interesting subjects, I think, for a lot of people. But you know what's so fascinating to me about this passage Here's what's so fascinating to me. It's that Jesus travels literally through hell and high water, the storm through hell and high water, to a pagan people who will kick him out of their town, and he does all of that to reach one very miserable, demon-possessed man, whose community deems him worth less than a herd of pigs, and who had absolutely no goodness whatsoever to commend himself to Jesus. And yet Jesus goes to reach this man, and transforms this man, and turns him into a message of Christ's redemptive power. That's what's fascinating to me about this passage. Government programs, better housing, health care reform, as important as those things are, they weren't the answer to this man's problems. This man needed Jesus. This man needed someone who would go through hell and high water, who would see value in him, even though there was no value seen in him by his community. He needed someone who would love him, who could vanquish the evil within him, who was more powerful than the evil that was inside this man. Only Jesus could vanquish the evil in this man. One day, as we have seen, Uh, Jesus, uh, as we've seen Jesus demonstrate and talk about throughout the Gospel of Mark, one day Jesus will vanquish all evil from the face of the earth with the same power that he displayed in the life of this one man. Jesus did this, this, this little thing, he did as a preview of what is to come one day in the future. But before that day could come, Jesus would have to pay for our sin. I want you to notice something about this passage. Verse 15 says... Verse 15 says that this man, after Jesus healed him, says that he was clothed and he was in his right mind sitting next to Jesus. But do you know what? Listen to this, get this. At the end of the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus, in effect, exchange places with this man. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is naked, stripped even of his clothes. As he hangs on a Roman cross. At the end of the book, Jesus is crying out and bleeding on the cross. At the end of the book, Jesus is driven into the tombs. Into the tomb at the end of the book of Mark. That is how Jesus paid for my evil, for your evil, for society's evil. He absorbed all of the evil and the injustice and the sin and the death of the world into himself. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine, so that someday he will come back and he will wipe out evil without having to wipe out us. Just as governmental laws weren't the solution to the evil that had claimed this man's body, so moral laws aren't the solution to the evil that lies within you. I want you to get this that the gospel is not about moral laws. Moral laws and moral codes don't and will not vanquish the evil within you. The gospel is about the love of Christ who went through hell and high water to reach you. That's the secret to how evil will be be vanquished in your life. Only when you see what it cost Jesus to pay for and defeat the evil in your life. Only then will you understand the depth of Jesus love for you. That shows your infinite value to him. This man, this demon-possessed man had nothing to commend himself. He couldn't say I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't whatever your rules are. He didn't he couldn't say any of that stuff. He was demon-possessed, he was thoroughly evil. And yet Jesus went through hell and high water to reach this man. Once you understand Jesus' love for you, that he went through hell and high water when he hung on a cross and died for your sins, once you get that, then you understand, I am loved. I am delighted in. And only that kind of love can motivate a person to want to obey, to want to be holy, to want to change. You see, laws and legalism they always work on the basis of fear. Laws and legalism motivate external change, but they do it with a heart that is only obeying out of fear and punishment. That's it. The gospel, though, changes the heart through the love of Christ. And so behavior changes, external behavior ends up changing, not out of fear, but out of love for a Savior who has shown His love for us first. Only Christ's love can vanquish the evil. That is in you. And only Christ's love can vanquish the evil in a society. Do you realize, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe, do you realize that the only reason that you are still here on this earth is to be just like this demon possessed man? This man was so smitten by Jesus' love. Did you see what happened at the end of the story? He wanted to stay with Jesus. He wanted to go with Jesus. Just let me be wherever you are, Jesus. The only person who had ever cared for him, whoever saw the value in this man, was Jesus. And he wanted to be with him. Just let me stay with you. That's why you're still here, my friends. It's to be like this demon-possessed man. Jesus... Sends him back into his own land, to his own family. He says, I want you to be an agent of redemption and healing within that land. He's, and that's why you're here. I don't care how messed up you think you are. Look at how messed up this guy was. Look at how broken this guy was. And Jesus sends him back into his community. And he says to you, he says to you, go back to your own people, you know, your family, where you work, your neighborhood, your friends, and spread the news and be a vehicle for my redemptive power in their lives. And you see, you do that, hear this, you do that not in spite of the fact that you're such a mess, but because you were such a mess. That's what makes you such a trophy of grace. You are such a mess. And Jesus has healed you. No matter how messed up you are, plunge your messed upness into the grace of Jesus Christ. And you can be a powerful tool for redemption in the world and in this community, this city. And as a result, this city can be changed. Be a trophy of grace, those of you who have believed, among the people in your relational world for what Jesus Christ can do in a person's life. Evil will be vanquished one day. But Jesus is vanquishing evil today in the lives of men and women who believe in him. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you like the demon-possessed man in that we have nothing to commend ourselves to you. Nothing. No amount of goodness uh, could commend us to you. Uh, It's not our goodness that caused you to want to love us, to save us, to die on a cross for us. It was our sin. It was our evil. And so, Lord, we honestly acknowledge that this morning. We confess that, that evil is in everyone, including me. For those of you that are here today that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your evil. And if you believe in him, his death, his resurrection, then you can be saved. Not believe and obey, not clean up your life first, but just believe, then you can be saved. If you would like to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can do so simply by acknowledging in this moment, in the privacy of your seat, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm a sinner. And I believe that you are the only power greater than the evil that is within me. I trust in your death on the cross, not my own good works, but your death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I believe that you were raised from the dead. And that you will return one day to vanquish evil forever. For those of you who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ Perhaps today would be a day that you would want to recommit yourself to being a testimony of His grace to the people in your relational world. When was the last time that you said something to someone about what Jesus Christ has done in your life? When was the last time that you told them that Jesus Christ loves them wherever they are, that He loves them? Maybe today would be a day to commit to doing that with someone in your relational world. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you today as the only power greater than the evil that is in us. We confess our own personal sins to you, Lord Jesus. We confess the sins of our nation to you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, bring a sweeping revival in our own personal hearts, in our own individual hearts, and throughout this nation that is so desperately in need of you. We worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. We anticipate your coming one day. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we worship and pray this morning. Amen.